0: Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly Economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms/publicsectorfuture. To find all the episodes, or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy Magazine's editor in chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Today, is the world deglobalizing? It's no surprise that international trade is experiencing turbulence. After the global financial crisis began in 2007, a decades-old trend of increased globalization first decelerated and then started to reverse course. Then COVID-19 struck in 2020, instantly snapping supply chains. Countries and companies focused on what we began to call nearshoring or friendshoring. And you know what happens next. Russia invaded Ukraine geopolitics began to impact trade even more. Add in a brewing Cold War between the United States and China, as well as a wave of nationalism around the globe, and you can start to see why the world seems to have embarked on a new era of industrial policy. What does that mean? Well, from China to the US to India, Europe, and beyond, major economies are embarking on a spree of big infrastructure spending but they're also turning inward, favoring domestic expansion over free trade and the global flow of goods. In a State of the Union address in February, US President Joe Biden deployed the phrase buy American to loud applause. His administration has passed landmark legislation such as the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips and Science Act, which as we know provides subsidies in clean energy and semiconductors, both very important areas, those subsidies are worth well over $400 billion. The inducements encourage U.S. companies to invest only at home, not elsewhere. Opportunistic firms in Asia and Europe have already begun to relocate investments to the U.S. Cue the protests from many other parts of the globe. A chorus of nations are accusing Washington of fostering unfair competition. Now, if the U.S. is turning protectionist, It's hardly the only country to consider its own interests above those of others. But this whole debate raises questions about whether a subsidies race represents sound economics. After the initial sugar high, will the world end up sacrificing the benefits of efficiency and innovation? And who benefits from a new era of great power competition? So to understand Washington's part in fostering industrial policy, I sat down with U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai, She is the Biden administration's top official tasked with mapping out and implementing the White House's trade policy. In addition to her very impressive career, Ambassador Tai has an interesting personal story. She's Asian-American, she's even lived in China, and she's fluent in Mandarin, one of very few in the administration. As you'll see later, I ask her how that influences her work. If you want to take part in these conversations in the future and have a chance to submit questions to my guests... Join us as a subscriber. Go to farmpolicy.com. Use the code FPLIVE for a 15% discount. That also gives you access to our magazine, of course, and all the essays that will leave you smarter. All right, that's the sell. On to the show. Ambassador Tai, welcome to FP Live.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Ravi. It's wonderful to see you and to be here with you.
0: It's great to have you on. So let's dive right in. Ambassador, I know you're often in Europe. In fact, that's where we last met. So I know you're no stranger to what many policymakers there say about America sometimes. And they look at the IRA or the CHIPS Act and they say, oh, this is unfair competition. Or they say, oh, it's protectionism. And they say this because Washington's deploying huge sums of money and subsidies to encourage American business and global business to invest in America. So when you hear those criticisms, how do you respond?
1: Well, um, first of all, let me um, take uh, the point about being in Europe quite a bit. I do make it a point of pride to do President Biden's bidding, which is to demonstrate that America is back, that our success as a nation fundamentally is tied to our being uh, connected with the rest of the world. And so a lot of what we have been doing has been rebuilding relationships and uh, uh, building them back even better than they were before. Uh, so a lot of our work has been with the Europeans. We've had a, a very strong record of success. Uh, we've called a truce in a almost 20 year long litigation going back and forth um, between the uh, The United States and the European Union on um, support that uh, we've given to our large civil aircraft uh, industries, um, the Boeing Airbus disputes. We have also dialed down the temperature on steel and aluminum trade. We've eliminated and persuaded our European friends to uh, take down um, retaliatory tariffs on billions of dollars of um, US trade to Europe. And in the meantime, we have created space to intensify our collaboration with our partners in Europe and uh, in the rest of the world to help each other get through some very disruptive years for the global economy. To your point on um, CHIPS and the Inflation Reduction Act, those are significant accomplishments in which uh, President Biden is rightly very proud, uh, as are uh, all of us in the administration. Uh, They are uh, strong accomplishments to um, uh, have uh, America finally, after many, many, many years of um, inability and um, neglect, perhaps, to finally invest in ourselves. And this is critical from my perspective with respect to um, our international economic and trade policies, because we have for a very long time pursued a uh, global uh, liberalization policy to integrate ourselves with the rest of the world uh, without uh, paying attention to the needs that we have here. And I would throw in there as well, uh, the bipartisan infrastructure law, put Mm -hmm. them uh, in a category of the United States finally investing in itself. So Ambassador
0: Tai, if I may, uh, you know, I cannot disagree with anything that you've said. It is these were signal accomplishments for the Biden administration domestically. But just coming back to the, the criticism that you you are often encountered with when you're in Europe, when officials there say that this these policies amount to unfair trade, uh, unfair competition or protectionism, how do you respond to that?
1: So the criticism that you describe is more often what I read in the press. Um, When I am uh, hearing it in the room, it's delivered to me as uh, concerns that our partners are are uh, are serious for them uh, that they are sharing with us, and and I want to make that distinction bequ- because uh, let's take the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, that's probably the the fulcrum of um, you know the, the point that you're trying to make, and it's been most dramatically painted in the public conversation. In all of my conversations with uh, partners and counterparts in Europe, the conversation always begins with a congratulation to President Biden for an incredible accomplishment, the largest uh, contribution we have certainly ever made to uh, battling the climate crisis, and and possibly any country has made. The reason why the conversation starts there is an important fact to keep in mind, which is that uh, the United States and Europe are completely unified in recognizing the significant challenge that we are all facing frankly, as an entire planet with respect to a changing climate and its impacts on uh, the sustainability and the future of our economies. So that is point number one. Point number two is we take extremely seriously the concerns that our partners and our allies are sharing with us. And I think here it is important also to recognize that um, the Inflation Reduction Act as a signature and significant uh, contribution to the fight against uh, climate change is uh, also a product of a democratic uh, Mm -hmm. rule of law system that we have here. And that uh, the partners that we are in conversation with and working with most closely are also democracies. And so what you see in the work that we are doing is democracies coming together and seriously grappling with the challenges that we are facing today to figure out how we can do this together. Because I think that in in that overall context then of the enormity of the challenge that we're facing with respect to economic sustainability, that the Inflation Reduction Act is not going to be the thing that solves it. It is an important motivator to incentivize technologies and economies to meet the challenge um, But uh, this is this may be the first, but it will not be uh, the last significant policy Mm -hmm. contribution that will need to be made.
0: So Ambassador Tai, you know, you make the point about democracy and, you know, that makes complete sense because, of course, uh, America has to look out for America's interests and you are tasked to uh, obviously deliver on America's interests. So that point makes sense in response to Europe. But economists also have some criticisms of the world sort of embarking on an era of industrial policy. Um, And they say that unlike free trade, industrial policy can sometimes be inefficient in the long run. They also say that when you subsidize large industries, that can stymie innovation. So how do you respond to those criticisms from, from the economic sector?
1: Certainly. So, um, uh, the first challenge that the Inflation Reduction Act is responding to is um, the climate crisis, but we are encountering the urgency of this crisis um, at a time of significant world economic disruption and, and volatility, if you will. What we have seen through the pandemic Through Russia's decision to invade Ukraine is a fragility in the world economy that we've got to navigate our way through. But I think that the other aspect that it is worth recognizing is that um, the global economy as it is, uh, is also experiencing a significant distortion uh, from the rise of a a, a very large and growing economy um, that um, has an Incredibly important role to play in the world economy, but structurally, does not operate the way that our economy does. Or the you're talking about China. I'm talking about China, and so I think that um, that is a factor that we absolutely cannot ignore in terms of the challenges that we are facing, which is a global um, uh, challenge to the fundamental premises of this globalization project that has been going on for the past several decades. And so uh, I would just say to your point about subsidies being inefficient, to the extent that we are providing incentives, right? There are, there are our subsidies, are tax incentives, they're meant to operate in a market system, uh, right? To, to influence firm behavior. The types of subsidies and state support that we see powering the PRC economy are of a completely different scale. In fact, they power the economy. They're not about creating incentives in a market system. There is a direct through line between the state and expression in the economy. And I think that that is a really, really important aspect of another shared challenge that we have with our European friends and also other partners all around the world In terms of um, a sustainable path to economic growth and development in a version of globalization where the field is not level and Mm. we are having to figure out how to adapt and we will need to adapt together.
0: You're listening to Foreign Policy Live. We'll be right back. So, let me ask you this it always seems to me that so much of US policy, domestic and foreign, Um, is filtered through the prism of competition with China. Is America already decoupling from China?
1: So um, there are a couple words um, that uh, are always in conversation uh, that I get asked um, in questions that I get asked that I always am fighting against. Uh, Decoupling is one of them and deglobalization is another one. I Mm. think, strictly speaking, you kind of have to tease out what exactly is it that you mean? If you mean by decoupling... Uh, that we're trying to completely divorce our economies, even if that was the desired goal, I think it would be extremely difficult to make happen, given reality, so recognize reality. But I think that really what we are trying to do is to identify where the risks and vulnerabilities are in the version of globalization that we see right now, The supply chain challenges that we've experienced through the pandemic, I think are really instructive. Uh, Whether it was personal protective equipment, masks, gloves, uh, even ventilators early in the pandemic to the um, semiconductor chip shortage, right? Which has impacted all of us. We see uh, global supply chains that were designed for efficiency chasing the lowest cost, without recognition that concentrations of supply and production create significant risks and vulnerabilities. So I think that the focus that we have, I hear my European friends call it de-risking. And I think that that is actually quite a helpful way of thinking about it. But from my perspective, it is to build in resilience in our supply chains to create incentives to um, ensure resilience uh, for our economies, because whether it is geopolitical, whether it is um, uh, climate related, uh, whether it is uh, health and epidemics, there will be more crises that we will encounter. What we need to do to be really constructive and productive through this period of time is to figure out how to adapt and uh, prepare the global economy to be able to uh, withstand and uh, cushion uh, future shocks. And um, I wouldn't call that decoupling. I think that that is really about um, ensuring that uh, we all have more options.
0: I take your point. I, I myself am not satisfied with the phrase uh, decoupling, although Uh, There are um, former U.S. uh, US officials who've used that term, uh, Bob Lighthizer, among others, who've argued for it. Um, But just coming back to China um, and the broader uh, idea of sort of slowing globalization, if not deglobalization, if part of America's sort of goal or, or policy is to contain China or to slow its rise, how do you see that affecting Global trade, global growth, the world economy.
1: So um, again, I don't think you're wrong, but I think that the um, I would just uh, you know take the lens and 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 turn it um, uh, in a in a in a slightly different direction, uh, which is from my perspective, at least in the trade and economic lane, it isn't about containing China, it is about lifting up America. Uh, lifting up our workers in certain sectors who felt like they have been very much invisible in uh, the pursuit of efficiency and global economic integration, lifting up our infrastructure, which uh, is really still coasting on um, investments that we made a couple generations ago and pulling ourselves up to make sure that we can run faster and uh, jump higher. So I think that um, that is probably the most useful Full lens to think about our economic policies, including our trade policy through.
0: Yeah, and I understand that. And if, again, of course, uh, your role is to look at um, America's interests first. Just one last question on that point. You know, there are some economists who will say that in a world in which uh, big countries are, you know, building up their own resilience, their own industrial policies, what often ends up happening is that smaller economies could end up suffering in an era where, uh, you know, countries like the U.S., like China, like Europe, uh, are looking more inwardly. Um, how how do you think through that um, in the administration? And again, I, I ask this question knowing that um, your primary interest uh, necessarily is America's. I get that.
1: So um, you you did put the words together, America's interests first. And that triggered for me also another um, uh, pet peeve around America first. All all countries are looking after their interests, right? You have to rely on everyone to be um, uh, interest-based. But, you know, I would distinguish the Biden administration approach. It's not America first and only. It's America and how can America lead and, and how can America partner? Right, uh, so very much um, the emphasis is on um, we need to invest in ourselves, but how do we not go it alone? Because um, that just isn't the nature of reality or the kind of world that we want to live in. That we would be doing things alone. So I think that um, you know, to your specific question about uh, what happens to smaller countries, uh, smaller economies, uh, I think that another version of this um, very important question has been uh, what about. Um, uh, developing economies, uh, you know, all along the spectrum of least developed to uh, to middle income, and I think that uh, here again it is consistent that uh, in order to be able to be a leader as befits the largest economy in the world, uh, we necessarily have to take good care of ourselves, but that we never lose sight of the need to be a good partner and. Uh, That even in trying to facilitate the creation of a new, more resilient version of globalization, there is an important element that we've got to uh, innovate in, which is how the United States can improve on previous models of partnership between large developed economies and smaller, less developed economies. Uh, So that is all to say that you were absolutely right, that the global economy does feel like it is in flux. But I, I think that, you know, we all have a certain prejudice against change because change is scary and there's no guarantee in terms of what the change will look like. But I do want to emphasize that anyone who has listened to President Biden speak, and if you've tuned into the State of the Union, you've heard him speak in a sustained way for quite a long time, uh, that uh, whether it's with respect to his domestic economic policies, his international economic policies, his foreign policy vision, that it is really all about building a better America and building a better world.
0: That's a great point. I want to bring in some subscriber questions since I promised I'd go there. Um, One of our contributors, Blake Herzinger, asks, how does your administration view its own competitiveness in the Indo-Pacific as the US remains outside major trade agreements like the CPTPP and the RCEP?
1: So uh, in terms of our competitiveness in the Indo-Pacific, I guess that particular question We feel very competitive. We are still the largest economy and uh, our economic partners uh, value their economic links to us. Here, I really want to highlight the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which our administration is leading with 13 other partners in the region. It includes an important trade component, but trade is not the sum of it. There are four pillars uh, across which we are engaging economically. There's trade, there's supply chains, which is on everyone's mind, uh, including uh, it is a common uh, dinner table conversation topic these days because of the degree to which uh, we are all recognized that supply chains is a vulnerability in our world economy. There is uh, a decarbonization and infrastructure is a third pillar and then tax and anti-corruption. In terms of this economic engagement, We see it as a platform that we are creating that is intended to be enduring to signal a long-term commitment to our Indo-Pacific partners. But it is truly about, again, bringing that spirit of partnership to work together uh, with uh, countries in this region and ensuring that we can cooperate and collaborate in navigating our way collectively through some very disruptive years, and here what I would say is in my conversations with my partners in this region, there is an absolute clarity and uniformity of purpose in wanting to engage with each other across these 14 countries to promote economic resilience, economic sustainability, and the inclusivity of prosperity that will be possible by working with each other.
0: Um, a couple more subscriber questions. Um, I'm going to post two at once, one from John Mallory, another from Matthew Um, And here they are. The first one is, what is the long-term goal of U.S. trade policy vis-a-vis China? And as you chew on that one, what is being done to reverse the lack of U.S. economic integration with neighbors in the Western Hemisphere and the rest of the world?
1: So you're right, that first one is a, is a big question. Um, our long-term goals vis-a-vis China. Um, you know, I, uh, I gave a speech on the US-China trade relationship now a little over a year ago. And I think that we spend a lot of time putting that speech together. And I still stand by everything that is in it, which is um, we need to find a way that we can coexist and compete fairly and uh, continue to be able to thrive and to safeguard the institutions and principles that we hold dear, that are really core to our political and economic DNA. And that is um, to ensure that um, we have the, the space to continue to have a strong democracy. And we have the space to continue to have a thriving economy that is based on market Competition principles. And I think um, uh, a lot of the challenges that we have are that if those are our goals, um, how do we accomplish this given that the second largest economy in the world operates on a very, very different system, has a lot of heft, mm. and is its own sovereign and makes its own decisions? Uh, So I think that this is uh, one of the most important uh, issues that um, we will grapple with as the United States, along with our partners and allies uh, who are looking to create the space to safeguard and to thrive in the ways that we are. On the second question, uh, which is the amount of uh, economic integration with the Western Hemisphere, I guess on this one, um, I would challenge the premise a bit. I think that we're actually quite integrated, uh, the United States economy and the economies of the Western Hemisphere. This hemisphere is the one which we have um, the most existing, comprehensive, traditional free trade agreements uh, of any region uh, in the world. I'm not saying that our work is done. I think that there always is more that we can and should do in our, no, our in our own neighborhood with our closest neighbors. So um, I suppose my answer is I think that we are quite well integrated, but uh, that I agree to the extent that this was the prim, the other part of the question. There certainly is more that we can and should do.
0: Okay, Ambassador Tai, I have one last question, and I'm going to make it a personal one. Um, you know, I'm I'm an Asian American. You're an Asian American. I think about this issue a lot. And I want to ask you how you think through your cultural heritage uh, and your sort of multiple identities and the multiple hats that you wear. Um, How does that inform your policymaking? And I should add, of course, you are a fluent Mandarin speaker as well, one of very few uh, in the administration. Um, So how do all of these things inform your policymaking, given that, you know, obviously, America's interests are what you are hired to defend, um, but you also have this global outlook um, that uh, isn't always the case for people in your position.
1: Uh, Well, that's a great question, Ravi, and I know that you and I have um, uh, started a bit in this conversation in uh, um, uh, our previous meeting. You know, in terms of having multiple identities, I I like how you have framed that. I think being um, the child of immigrants, having grown up speaking a different language at home, I love to learn languages. I think I can ask where is the bathroom in many, many languages, and I may be able to understand the response in at least two or three. Um, But uh, uh, I think it underscores an important aspect of uh, the work that we do here at USTR, certainly, but also the Biden administration's outlook internationally which is um, you have to be able to build bridges and you have to be able to bridge gaps, uh, gaps in communication, uh, gaps in understanding. This is why I spend so much of my time seizing opportunities like this one with you to have the conversation and be able to elaborate on and explain our thinking and what we're trying to accomplish. In terms of our partners in Asia, uh, including uh, China, very large, important partner with whom we have a a quite complex relationship, Uh, I think you always have to start with um, being able to communicate, to communicate um, your point of view, and then also being able to listen uh, and receive that communication. And I'd say that um, this is a skill set that is also really important uh, to policymaking on the domestic side. These differences in outlook aren't just limited to national outlooks, but uh, something that I um, uh, take particular pride and a sense of responsibility in is maintaining a a bipartisan outlook on how we advance American trade policy, uh, because it really is. uh, In the title of my job and in the title of our agency, we are the office of the U.S. trade representative. And it is the interest of all of America, all the component, parts of the economy, the communities, the regions uh, that we need to uh, drive and formulate policy for.
0: Ambassador Catherine Tai, thank you so much for your time, for listening and for speaking.
1: Thank you so much, Ravi.
0: And that was Ambassador Catherine Tai, the U.S. Trade Representative. Next week a question many in the foreign policy community are grappling with. Is U.S. policy toward China becoming too hawkish? I will speak with a former China hand in the Biden administration, Jessica Chen Weiss. She argues that the two countries are headed down a dangerous path. You will not want to miss this one. Remember, if you want to watch these in video, live, you can do that on foreignpolicy.com live. Subscribers get a chance to be a part of the conversation. They can submit questions in advance and help frame some of these discussions. So sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. I'll see you next week.
2: Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, Professor of Law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant.
0: The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk.
2: The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust, walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Tiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy in each episode we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world like giving a gift
0: you want to make it tasteful you want to make it thoughtful you thought about the other individual you thought about what their likes and dislikes are
2: or creating a fiction taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you
1: to think through what you would like to have done differently,
2: or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.